wrestlers would, you know, live their gimmick, their character into their everyday life. And, you know, the ramifications of that are really interesting. And just, you know, wrestling is a really wild, you know, world and backdrop, but all the stories we're covering, I think are things that people can relate to is this wrestling puts this like crazy pressure on a person and um, how they like, you know, navigate that world um, and how the family members of the, of the wrestlers uh, navigate it is really something that we're really fascinated in too. Um, That's a big part of our show. The documentary series Dark Side of the Ring covers the complicated, often tragic lives of professional wrestlers. Dartmouth's Jason Eisner is the co-creator of that series, which launched its third season last week on Vice, and he'll be on the show this week to talk about making TV in a pandemic, unearthing the cult Halifax classic Siege, and 10 years of Hobo with a Shotgun. I'm Tara Thorne, and this is The Tideline. Welcome. I hope you're all doing well, considering. Century Egg released a new EP last week called Little Piece of Hair, and here's the ripper of a lead track from that record. This is called Do You Want to Dance?
Jason Eisner joining me from Dartmouth, where you have your you're back after being in LA for a while. That's right. I'm I'm back to you know my 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 hometown. Uh, it's you know my my favorite place on earth. So yeah, it feels good to be home. And your time in LA, um, you know, was it how long were you there? Um, I was there um, from I believe before it was right before Christmas because uh, my, my partners uh, lives there and um, and then I had to go from there to Toronto to film uh, a studio session for Dark Side of the Ring uh, where we shoot like our reenactments in a, in a, in a studio there in Toronto mm-hmm. and then I came home probably I, I guess what would it have been like end of end of March uh, and so yeah it's been great being home is the whole going to LA like obviously you you're you know, you you had some, you had a reason to go back, but uh, in terms of, you know, being a filmmaker and, and doing the kind of work that you do is, is going to LA still one of those things that, that does help you? Uh, it does when there's not a pandemic, <laughs> um, but when the, when the pandemic, you know, has been happening the past year and a half, there's been no reason to be there really. Mm-hmm. Cause all, all my meetings, everything, even working on my TV show, it's all done through uh, zoom and uh, done over uh, online. Uh, but you know, pre-pandemic, it, it definitely was like for me. I just find uh, being there. I'm really inspired by a lot of um, my peers who are there because a lot of people are from away and from different places that have, um, you know, are following a dream and have like mm-hmm. such passion for it. And so when I'm around that like energy and I'm there, I just find myself being, uh, you know, constantly inspired and wanting to work and. Uh, and, you know, I'm avoiding uh, seasonal depression when I'm <laughs> at home in the winter, <laughs> which I didn't realize it was something that really affected me until I, I spent time there. <laughs> right. I find Los Angeles very interesting because it's like literally the place you go to get famous. It's literally the place you go to make. You're like, if you move there, you're going there with a dream and you're trying to make it happen for yourself. So because of that, there is so much uh, there's so much dead dream vibe there you know what i mean like so many people go and it doesn't work out so there's like a deep sadness sort of under all the sun yeah i feel it's also a harsh reality too like it makes me when i see it like it's really you know it can be really sad to see Mm -hmm. um and you know being from here and you know going to la and seeing like skid row like especially now is uh is really heartbreaking uh to see and I don't know, I guess, and I, and I can tell I've seen people who like, I don't know, this remind me of like myself when I'm younger, when I was younger, trying to hustle my way there and, and, and you know, trying to make a living doing what I love doing and, you know, to see someone else who didn't get to, to do that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a harsh reality for me and it just, re, I don't know, maybe just uh, reminds me I'm very for, fortunate to, to be able to do what I do. Right. Uh, so speaking of, of sadness, <laughs> let's, talk, <laughs> let's talk about your show, Dark Side <laughs> of the Ring, which as we're talking, the, the two-part uh, Brian Pillman premiere was last night. Um, yeah. And man, I don't know. I mean, first of all, it, let's just start with wrestling as a thing. So I think people might be surprised to know that um, I grew up in a piece of shit town called Lance, which is like out past the airport. <laughs> and um, it used to be the country, but now it's like suburban HRN basically. But, you know, so I grew up in rural Nova Scotia and I ha- watched wrestling. So this show has covered a lot of the wrestlers that I grew up with too. Like, you know, Bret Hart, Owen Hart, uh, yeah. Dino Bravo, mm-hmm. um, R- Macho Man Savage and Elizabeth. Um, do you feel like there is 
there is something extra, something extra dark about this industry. It's specifically, is there extra pain here? Um, it, It depends. Yeah. Like there's, you know, just the actual physicality of the sport, I think is, uh, it wears on the body probably more than any other sport. When you really think about it, you know, even football players only play so many games a year, but wrestlers have to do these insane stunts, like, you know, 300 and something nights a year. Mm -hmm. And so just like that amount of uh, just physical trauma on the body will lead to things like taking, you know, medication to try and like ease the pain or, um, you know, or, or just even for me, I find so fascinating is just the, the blurred lines of the sport. And, you know, unlike any other art form or sport, it doesn't, call for its uh, performers to uh, well wrestling calls for its performers to live their like gimmick in their everyday uh, public life, especially more so back uh, up, you know, up until like, I would say like through to the, the like two thousands, like wrestlers would, you know, live their gimmick, their character mm-hmm. into their everyday life. And, you know, the ramifications of that are really interesting and just, you know, wrestling, is a really wild, you know, world and backdrop, but all of the stories we're covering, I think are things that people can relate to. Is this wrestling puts this like crazy pressure on a person and um, how they like, you know, navigate that world um, and how the family members of the, of the wrestlers uh, navigate it is really something that we're really fascinated in too. Um, that's a big part of our show. Yeah. And I mean, as a director, you're, you're talking to these people about, the worst things that have happened to them. Like every yeah. episode, that's what you're doing. So yeah. what is your sort of approach to when you, when you reach out to people, sort of how, how do you ap- approach them? Well, it does, it does take some time to gain trust and build relationships, especially with the, when we were making the first season of dark side of the ring, we didn't have, I you know, any street cred out there. And you did it not was have really, Chris Jericho. No, we time. did not have him. Um, and, it just like with that with the pilot episode about Bruiser Brody, um, that was probably like the 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 gain the trust of some of the subjects in that took probably half a year of you know conversations and phone calls and um, I know that was the case with uh, Tony Atlas who's in that episode and um, Bruiser Brody's uh, widow uh, Barbara Goodish. Um, is somebody that is really respected in the wrestling world. And Bruiser Brody himself was really highly regarded. It seems like every wrestler, you know, has a lot of respect for him and his, and his wife. And so when it came time to do other episodes, there were times where we had to get Barbara to vet for us to, um, other wrestlers. Oh, and, wow. um, and she, and she did that, uh, for us, which was amazing. And, you know, with the, with the fir- the release of the first season, um, that really helped us to open up doors for the next season and be able to tell stories that we would never have been able to gain access to in the first season. Um, yes, highest, so, yeah. highest rated show on Vice, correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. That's <laughs> yeah, <very> cool. <laughs> how do you put a season together? Because you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of sad stories here. So what? How do you uh, uh, approach a season? Yeah, it's like. Um, you know, we try to find the stories that um, 
are not just stories that wrestling fans would be interested in hearing that stories that, you know, that my, my parents and my family members who are not interested in story uh, wrestling, um, I want them to be glued to the screen and, uh, you know, very intrigued by it. Um, And so it kind of, we, we have like, you know, we do a lot of research um, and, before even venturing down the path of making the show, uh, me and, my, and the co-creator, Evan Husney, we were obsessed for years with collecting uh, stories. And um, and so now what we do is, you know, we have a giant, there's a big list of stories that we could potentially do, uh, but we like to get feedback from our fan base. And so, so every time we finish a season, we put it out there uh, on social media to everyone. If we, get a chance to make another season. What would you like us to see, uh, like us to, to cover? And we get, you know, thousands and thousands of responses. Wow. And, you know, Evan, uh, producer, he like puts it all, he collects them all and puts them into a Excel spreadsheet <laughs> and counts them all up. And that actually becomes part of the process. Like we have our favorites that we want to tell, but um, hearing from the fans that, you know, if we're teetering on an idea or a subject and uh, we get a big response from people out there that really want to see a story covered, then that will help push us over the edge to do it. Cool. Um, has, has I've seen most of the shows, so, but forgive me, I don't remember. Has Vince McMahon been on? No, he hasn't. Have no. you tried? Um, it, you know, it's, it's not really um, like... It's it's something we would absolutely love. Mm-hmm. We, you know, I think it would be a dream to sit down with Vince. I think you could do you know a whole season uh, with him and sit down mm-hmm. with him. But um, we, you know, we're just starting now to kind who to open up the doors. I guess you could say um, to people on that side of the company. Um, like right. for instance, this season we have a really big episode about uh, the steroid trials. Uh, where uh, Vince McMahon was being indicted by the government, um, and we have his uh, personal, you know, his right hand lawyer Jerry McDivitt, who's been with him for God, over thirty years and handled wow. every big lawsuit. So, you know, he's a very big uh, get for us this season. And you know, who knows? Maybe down the road, like that, that this may be just the start of uh, you know getting more opportunities uh, to, to interview people from the company. Cool. Do you find, I mean, you talked about needing to gain trust in terms of family members and such, but do you, are people generally happy to be asked to be on the show? Yeah, for the most part now, like with the success of the, the show mm-hmm. um, and people see how we've, you know, handle certain subjects, they um, are, uh, they've been more inclined to want to be, be part of it. There's been instances where we've reached out to people and they were like, no, I can't, I, I can't do this. I, I've never told my story and I don't want to. And then they get curious and they watch an episode and they come back and they're like, Oh, I, you know, I knew those people that you were covering and you guys did such a great job. And, um, you know, they would then be, uh, open to the idea of being on the show. Uh, so that's been really cool. Um, you know, that the show is, been, is able to do that for us. Awesome. What's been, um, what's your favorite episode so far? Are you allowed to pick? I don't know. It's, it changes. Um, I'm, you know, I have a lot of love for the very first story the Bruiser Brody story, Mm -hmm. because that was our entryway into this. And I, you know, I've been so obsessed with his career. Uh, but the, doing the Von Erich story was a very, uh, 
powerful moment in my life. Um, Kevin Von Erich, who, you know, he lost like um, uh, several brothers mm-hmm. to, uh, in, in tragedies uh, and to spend time with him and his family in, in Kauai uh, was uh, a very surreal experience. Probably one of the more surreal experiences I ever had as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know, like now I'm really like intrigued by um I'm currently working on this episode about uh, Jake the Snake Roberts family and his father, Grizzly Smith, who was a wrestler you know, way back in the day. And a lot of people don't know that like Jake the Snake Roberts also comes from a wrestling family. His father was a wrestler, Grizzly Smith, his brother, Sam Houston, and his sister, Rockin' Robin. Um, but it, they were never kind of like – they were never um, – promoted like the Hart family or the Von Erics, you know, but there, it's a very, it's a really, really dark story and a, um, a lot of trauma that, um, that they've had dealt with. There's a, this great wrestling documentary called beyond the mat, um, which is, uh, fairly old now, but, uh, there's a moment in that documentary where they're interviewing Jake, the snake Roberts. And he talks about, uh, his relationship with his father and how when he was young um his sister was kidnapped and uh and potentially murdered they still have never found her body to this day but it's only briefly mentioned in the documentary for like a couple seconds but it always had been something that intrigued me and jake sick roberts has been someone who i've been so fascinated since i was like a little kid and having Mm -hmm. you know his action figures Mm -hmm. um but to like now we really explore you know that side of his family's story and there's been a couple documentaries about jake the snake roberts but um our doc doesn't you know overlap with any of the stuff that those documentaries have talked about because this is you know it's and and it's amazing to see his family kind of for the first time come together to uh to tell their story as a family amazing so i mean obviously this is all very serious subject matter but you're also in the room with like childhood icons sometimes what is that experience like do you do you get (laughs) do you get excited like i don't know I, 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 I do sometimes I have to like kind of check myself because we try not to, as I say in the wrestling business, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't want to like mark out on the, uh, <laughs> on them, but, uh, I do like, you know, I still have all my wrestling action figures that I grew up with and wow. they were a big part of my childhood and forming my imagination. You know, my first storytelling was probably with my wrestling figures and my Ninja Turtles and, you know, Ghostbusters and Transformers, they all like fought each other in the ring, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But it is like interesting, like to pull a figure off my shelf and, and then think like I've done like this documentary and there's about this person and there is all this trauma you know, behind the character that is this action figure, like this action figure, like Jake, the snake's action figure wouldn't be Jake, the snake hadn't all the things that happened prior into his life, even the traumatic stuff really formed that character. So it's really, that's really surreal to me. And it's like, that's, it's, it's, I've been lucky in, in my career to get to, to um, spend time with some of the people that were my childhood heroes. Um, and it's surreal to kind of almost be like this pseudo um, like therapist to them in a way <laughs> yeah. in those moments, because you're really, you know, like you said, we're asking them to talk about some of the, the darkest times of their lives. Uh, but 
you know, I don't, we don't want to do it in like an exploitive way at all. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, we have to be so sensitive to that, even when you have such a short amount of time with this person. Um, But we try to come up, come to it always with like love and try to create like a, an atmosphere where people can just open up and feel free to not be afraid to, to talk about their truths. Cause they've for so long in the wrestling world, you've been told to keep it a secret, you know, and don't mm-hmm. talk about it mm-hmm. or don't upset the company, you know, mm-hmm. cause the big company, you know, that's your livelihood. And even family members used to be afraid to talk about it. So now it's great. I think to give a platform for them to, you know, be open about this period of time. And it's, uh, I think a lot of people can relate to uh, the things that people are going on in our, in our show. And that's what we try, we try to show, we try to show that side of it. That's like really important for us. Yeah. I mean, it's on vice. And I mean, we all know what vice's brand is and like, it could be very trashy and it's, it's not. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, I'm very (laughs) cautious of that. It's something that's, you know, really, it's uh, a <laughs> someone who deals with a lot of anxiety. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't want to do stuff like that. Like I'm very, like I'm, um, I'm very sensitive to how um, the families are going to feel about mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. Cool. And how many episodes are in this, uh, in this season? This is 14, which is 14. Crazy. That's the biggest number, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The first season was six and the second season was 10. <laughs> and, you know, it was amazing when they called us and said, you know, we want to do the third season. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. But we want 14 episodes and there's a pandemic. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. <laughs> like, how are we going to do this? You know, but uh, thankfully we've, we've, we've made it work. And, um, you know, our top priority is to be, you know, safe and uh, everyone's safe. And we've learned everything about COVID like protocols and like production. But also, you know, I'm, I didn't want to sacrifice the quality of the show either. Um, And that worried me at first, but um, we have such an incredible team and we were able to hire more people and, and um, you know, everyone just has, we've made this, we've made it work. Like I, I like the idea of like not being in the room with people, like, Mm -hmm. like in prep and stuff like that scared me because I'm just so I'm all about people feeling my energy in the room and just, you know, vibing on stuff. And then to like have to do it like online is, uh, you know, it's tough, but we've been able to make it work and we've just, we've hired such great creative people that, um, I've been able to let go of certain responsibilities that I used to take and, um, and, you know, allow other people to, uh, to bring so much to it. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, I'm thankful. I'm, I'm really proud of the episode so far. Awesome. And maybe season four, you'll get a standard network 22. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> is there enough know. sadness? Yes, there is. Yes, unfortunately. there is. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about something a bit more fun, which is that 10 years ago, not, you know, I'm not dismissing it. Uh, 10 years ago, uh, Hobo with a Shotgun premiered at Sundance. Yeah. Um, I remember when you made the short and it was for this, this <laughs> grindhouse competition. It was like, make these grindhouse movies are coming out. Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez. It's like, make this short in this style. I remember talking yep. to Josh McDonald and he oh, said, Jason, love Josh. J- he's like, Jason Eisner made this movie called Hobo with a Shotgun and I think it's going to win. And I was like, okay, Josh, like, <laughs> sure, this movie from Dartmouth is going to win this international competition, and then you did, and then it became a feature. Um, <laughs> yeah, 
Talk to me it's about insane. that. Like Rutger Hauer also. Um, you know, you oh, got an I yeah. you got an icon. Um, do you remember yeah. much at this point about filming that? I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it brings back these feelings of like uh, like excitement but also like so much fear at the same time mm -hmm. i was like so scared making that movie <laughs> <laughs> and like i just felt so much pressure um and you know working with someone like rugger hauer like you know i didn't mark out much on wrestlers like making this show you mm -hmm. know but with rugger that was he was my first like when i was you know becoming a a film fan in junior high and high school and obsessing over movies. He was like the first actor that like, when you're like figuring out what a movie is and you see that an actor is doing something that you like and you're like, Oh, I wonder what other movies this actor is in. And you start like tracking down them. That was, he was the first for me. And so I like had those butterflies like every other day like right. on set and uh he challenged me like so much like every day it was like a crazy challenge and i it, and he demanded a lot of my attention um which uh like i you know i look back on it and i like i learned so much from him i feel like he prepared me like for so much and i uh, nothing has compared since to like that experience with him. Right. Um, and yeah, like, and the, I, there was just the making, like making that movie here in my, my hometown, um, like the energy of it. Uh, it just, I don't know. There was just something really cool. Like there was this, this vibe in the air on set, like every day. Um, this TV show has been taking up a lot of your time. Have you gotten, uh, do you have any film projects in the works? Yeah, I, I, I have several that I've been developing over the years. Um, but um, you know, I like, there's like a couple that are just, you know, it's kind of, there's like a couple studio projects that if, uh, you know, things work out with pandemic, whatnot, get the right casting. It's like a puzzle piece. It's like, you got to get, you know, the right script with the right, especially in the studio world and get the right, you know, executives excited about it. And then, you know, all the puzzle pieces have to be coming together at the right time to really right. trigger that off. But I am going to do something like an indie, an indie flick. I hope like, um, uh, in the, we'll see in the fall here in Scotia. But this year. But, oh, exciting. Yeah. That's my, that's my, that's the hope. But you know, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to. Oh, you know, I know. Mess One it never up knows. Myself, but and also, yeah, you never know. That's the thing. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> to me when you talk about the puzzle pieces and like how hard it is to get a movie made and how bad so many of them are. It's like, oh, how, yeah. do, how do we get here <laughs> with all of the elements that need to be? I know. That's <laughs> though I find. I don't know how you feel, but I like, I used to be very. <laughs> I used to be very critical of movies. Like before I made a movie, I used to right. like, you know, be so quick to judge. Mm -hmm. And then when I made a movie, it's like, you know, I like, I'll see someone's movie and there's times where I'm like, oh, this is just a waste of time or whatever, or people's effort. But, you know, they're still for some of those movies. It's like a miracle had to happen to make this movie yeah. happen. You know, it really, it takes so much to, you know, get a movie, get an actor in front of the camera with a crew. It's like, it seems 
I don't know. When it happens, it really does like feel like a miracle, and that you get to the end of it and you you got it all in the can. You know, it's just uh, and like that's you know when I when I think of like movie, this is kind of lame, but when I think of like movie magic, it's like that to me is kind of like what movie magic is, or you just get the right. You know, you got the right team together, the right mm-hmm. artists and your keys, and you're all, you know, in sync with each other. Mm-hmm. And everyone is, you know, firing all on, on all the same cylinders. And I'm sure you experienced this too on your on your feature. I, did, I real yeah. I had to yeah. I had to realize too is like, you know, I'm used to like I was used to like on short films, like having to stress out about every aspect of mm-hmm. it. But then you get all these other great artists, like, you know, a production designer, a costume designer hair and makeup and everyone is like all these really cool artists that are, you know, they're, they're vibing on your vision and just trying to feed you stuff to, you know, get you excited. And that is the, to me, the, the movie magic stuff. For sure. That part really freaked me out where people would be like, do you like this? And I go, no. And they're like, okay, next. Yep. And it's just yeah. like, wow. <laughs> Look at this. Like I see, I see why people become dickheads. I really do. Yeah, well, it's good that you know how to say no, because that's a really tough thing I find as a director sometimes. It's like Mm -hmm. even uh, when someone like puts a lot of effort into something and it shows up and you're like, oh, this isn't really the the vision, you know, the the idea that we had. And and then to like tell them no is like, I find, you know, just because I I hate to just inconvenience anyone. So to me, I have to remind myself that I have to, you know, fight for um what i want you know so good on you <laughs> well thanks i mean i said yeah i mean i i don't want to sound like i said no all the time <laughs> it, was yeah. just, it was just surprising to me that there was never a fight about it it's just like yeah. okay we'll move on no it's, um, a, it's the job <laughs> tell me about this cult halifax film that you're getting out into the world called siege Oh my God. Siege. Um, was a film, uh, made here in Halifax, uh, back in 1981, 82. And it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I definitely, my, probably my favorite Canadian film and then just how it inspired me. It was a movie. Yeah. Like I said, shot here in Halifax, uh, for like a budget of like $250,000 shot in, it was like 14, 15 days they shot it. And um, it was like, I had, I didn't see it when I was young. I saw it like when I was like in college mm-hmm. uh, probably, or just out of college. I, it was one of those movies where like when I got to meet other cinephiles from other places in the world and when they would say, when I would say, Oh, I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia, they would be like, Oh, you're where you're from where siege was shot. And I'd be like, oh, like, what's that? And they're like, you don't know what Siege is? Like, you know, this movie is shot in your hometown. And I looked it up and I found like a copy at a, like a pawn shop here in Dartmouth. And wow. Uh, Cause it's so hard to find. Yeah. It's so, the, even the VHS, cause it was never, this movie was never released on DVD or Blu-ray. It had a limited release on VHS and a limited theatrical release back in 1982. So it's been near impossible to find. And in recent years, someone put a copy of it on YouTube, but it, um, it takes place during a Halifax police strike. And it's, uh, there's, you know, the, the, the city streets are locked down and there was an actual police strike in Halifax at the time. And this movie kind of blurs the lines in a way where they use actual ATV, uh, 
news footage of the police strike. And that's how the movie like starts off is like, you're seeing our local <laughs> reporter talk about the police strike and how it's like affecting the community and it's, and people are locked down and you're seeing the empty like streets of Halifax. And then there's this group of guys, these like assholes that are like these, um, they're these fascists who form their own th- gang. They're like their own vigilante gang to police their own laws in the streets. Wow. And they end up going into, um, yeah, because there's a curfew, they end up going into an underground gay bar and they, um, they pick a fight with the bartenders and the patrons there. And they are, you know, it's, it's a very intense scene. Um, it's like, uh, it's, these guys are, probably some of the worst villains I've ever seen in a movie. And um, they end up killing the bartender and they end up, uh, you know, getting, they're worried that they're going to get in trouble. So they call the gang leader who comes down and they tie everyone up in the club and they shoot everyone except for this one guy who gets away and he runs through the streets of Halifax trying to find help. And he like runs into an apartment building and these people, uh, this family, um, of like a couple and a friend and these two uh, uh, people, guys who are blind, they take him in and decide to like fend him off from these fascists that wow. are trying to kill him. And yeah, the movie is just like ahead of its time. And um, I've never seen like, you know, from just my film experience, I guess, like I hadn't seen like, uh, especially at that time period, like the, uh, the LGBT community, like mm-hmm. represented in the genre mm-hmm in this way and like you know to see that in like my home and you know in my hometown and 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 even at the time it was like you know that's a it was a very topical thing like the rcmp were like raiding um uh gay clubs in toronto and montreal at the time and uh which they had to like recently like apologize for uh and you know in the end of the movie you find out that these this gang of fascists, one of them is actually like a Halifax police officer. Ah. And that's like so, you know, I'm sorry I'm spoiling it, but <laughs> I want you to I gotta tell you whatever I got to tell you to yeah. watch this movie because yes. it's like, holy shit, like this movie, this, the, this movie knew, you know, that would have been such a far-fetched idea. Probably mm-hmm. I bet to a lot mm-hmm. of audience members at that time, there were communities who knew that that was a reality. Um, but uh you know, now to see it with the context of today, it's like, mm-hmm. holy shit, man, this who, movie. Uh, who so wrote and directed it? It's Paul Donovan and Maura O'Connell. Um, they were together at the time and they, yeah. The, and, and their brother, and Paul's brother, Michael. Oh, uh, like future it. Academy Award winners. Okay. Yeah. This yeah. Makes yeah. <laughs> this makes yeah. sense to me now. <laughs> yeah. And they like, they shot it on this apartment in this apartment on Salter street, which they later we, well, pretty soon after, formed a company called Salter Street Films. Yeah, uh, but that was that was the street they lived in in this apartment building, and they shot the whole movie like in their apartment building as wow. well too, which is really cool. Um, and so it's you- beautiful. It's like the movie looks beautiful. Like I, I, you know, we all we ever had was this shitty VHS, you know, right. quality to see, and now they they were able to like 
we were able to find um, the original film elements uh, for the movie that were they were hanging out in the Nova Scotia archives. Wow. And like Paul Donovan de- didn't even have a film print of the movie himself. <laughs> and it was kind of like this lost treasure. And uh, Rob Cotterell, my producing partner on Hobo the Shotgun, mm-hmm. you know, me and him for years have been trying to unearth this movie. And so we, we finally got it out of the Nova Scotia archives, sent the print to Los Angeles where it was scanned and it is so beautiful. Um, I always knew the movie would look incredible with a new scan and man, it just like, it blows me away. So you've like produced a DVD that people can purchase. I didn't produce it, but um, probably like just helped it get in the door at uh, Severn films with uh, David, David Gregory um, who, you know, they've been releasing films for years and um, you know, it was, it's funny, like, uh, <laughs> there's, uh, when I released Hobo with a Shotgun, we premiered the movie, and, um, or one of the places we premiered it was in New York, and I remember going, and they had this filmmaker who was someone I love named Bill Lustick, who uh, directed uh, Maniac and Maniac Cop and Vendetta, <laughs> uh, or, sorry, Vigilante, and um, he ran the distribution company Blue Underground, and uh, for... I remember when I first met, like I first met him, I'm so excited, you know, to meet him and talk about my, about my movie. And he's like, yeah, yeah, Hobo Shock and great movie. But, um, so Siege, uh, <laughs> uh, do you know the director of Siege? <laughs> like to start asking me all these questions about Siege. And, and he was like, I saw that movie at AFI, like when it, you know, the American, or uh, sorry, AFM, the American film market, you know, when it was first being sold and he had been obsessed with trying to find that movie like ever since. And, wow. and so, yeah, that was really cool to see. Um, but yeah, it's been, you know, for people who I guess, you know, really try to search down like hidden treasures of film. This is like, to me, I think one of the, you know, the great, um, Discovery is a great, you know, the great treasures to be unearthed and pulled out of an archive and given new life. Um, right. So I'm just, I'm so stoked to be able to be part of it. And I got to do a commentary with Paul Donovan. And oh, awesome. He's like, he's, he's such an interesting guy. Like, I don't know if you've ever interviewed him before. I have not. Um, oh, you should. I bet, <laughs> I bet you two would get along so well. Like he, um, I, cause I, when I went years before making Hobo with a Shotgun, the movie, you know, I, I wrote, I, it was like the Salter street film website. And I just wrote this passionate email and it probably went to the webmaster <laughs> of the website and he sent it to Paul Wow! and I got this email from him and he's like, Hey, let me take you out to lunch. And, you know, I'm like 20, I don't know, four years old or whatever. And he took me to a diner and, um, and for like three or four hours, just like, was super honest with me about, you know, all the mistakes that he made in the industry and the things that he thought he did good and, you know, you could give advice on. And it was super valuable. And, you know, to, and we, we've kept in touch. And uh, oh, he's awesome. released some other awesome movies. Like uh, he did a movie right after it called George's Island, which oh, I consider yeah. to be like the Halifax or like the Canadian Goonies. Uh, but it's so cool. It takes place here in Halifax. And that you know, it's all about that island that sits out in the middle of the harbor there. And uh, this kid who lives with his, he's like this um, 
this kid who doesn't have his parents but lives with his grandfather and his grandfather tells him these legends of a treasure that was buried by Captain Kid on George's Island and it all takes place on Halloween and this kid goes on this like mission to go to George's Island and get out there and then he gets uh, haunted by ghost pirates out there and it's just oh. it's so fun and it's uh <laughs> And Brian Downey, who's a great local actor, yeah. who was in my movie, uh, Hobo the Shotgun, he plays like this really surreal villain character in it that uh, is really haunting for a kid's movie. It's like a kid's movie where it's like, it's like made for kids, but it takes it to, you know, and maybe cl- classic Canadian fashion. It's like maybe just a little too intense yeah, for kids too dark. at times. Yeah, you know. <laughs> also, can I say I feel- Paul Donovan took you to a diner? With all his yeah, money. Or, yeah, yeah. It was great. Or maybe I suggested it. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. Oh, and I, he's, he's brought me to his house and made me tea. And, mm-hmm. you know, we just sat there and, you know, bullshitted about movies and stuff. And that's I, cool. Uh, yeah, I love him. <laughs> As mentors go, that's a good, that's a tapped in one for sure. Yeah, um, for sure. Cool. Can you give me any preview of um, the next couple episodes of, of Dark Side of the Ring? What we can see? Yeah. So, well, yeah, we had the Brian Pillman episode, two parts that just aired. And next week, we've got uh, the Nick Gage uh, episode, which is probably one of our more contemporary episodes. But Nick Gage is like this, he's this current day deathmatch wrestler, um, which deathmatch death wrestling is pretty. It's pretty extreme. It's like Sounds that kind of wrestling where they use like barbed wire, baseball bats and oh. fluorescent light tubes. And, um, and he is somebody who just takes it to the most extreme. Like on Like when we got the first cut of the episode, I couldn't even watch it. I had to like watch it through my like fingers. Cause it was so, <laughs> it was so graphic and standards and practices made us, you know, definitely tone the episode down right. so it could actually play on television. Uh, but you know, he is somebody, um, who is, you know, he'll say he's willing to die in the ring. And there was a moment a few years ago at this event called the tournament of death. You're not, you know, you're not really supposed to die. It's just supposed to be a, you know, figurative yes. <laughs> title, <laughs> but he actually died. He died. He like, he got cut and lost so much blood and on his way, he was helicoptered to the airport. He actually died on the way and they, wow. uh, for several minutes and they were able to bring him back to life. And oh. so, um, and I don't know if you've seen, um, a couple years ago, there was this thing about David Arquette getting in the ring and mm-hmm. a wrestler had stabbed him with a light tube in the neck and he almost, David Arquette almost died in the ring. Oh. That was Nick Gage that he was fighting. Oh, and so David Arquette's in the episode as well. Oh, wow. And he must uh, he be, was a, he seems like a trip. He was, yeah, he was, he was cool. <laughs> I really liked talking to him. Um, I, uh, you know, I think he was like, a little like on guard because he was being interviewed by the dark side of the ring guys, you know, right. and probably, and I don't blame him to be a little bit, you know, cautious of it. Um, but in between like, you know, questions and setups, it was cool to like, you know, just bullshit about other things. Like, you know, we got, I, I had to ask him about, you know, working with Wes Craven mm-hmm, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the coolest thing he told me about working with Wes, with Wes Craven was that, um, he was like, yeah, Wes Craven used to just watch like anime 
like all the time. He was wow. like super into anime. And, you know, in the 90s, um, <laughs> that stuff was like really hard to like find, but he would have, you know, assistants like really track it down. But that's where he got a lot of his shots, like inspiration oh, was wow. from animes and from camera setups. And, and I can now that, you know, that makes sense. And like, even when you think about like Nightmare on Elm Street, it's like yeah. almost this like really surreal anime in a way so that was cool uh, did he give so, yeah. you any on um, scream five tips no actually i didn't even ask i didn't even ask <laughs> I, think he's in it. I think he is i think he is yeah yeah, yeah. but no I, I didn't ask about that um but yeah the nick gage episode is i i'm really excited about it because i think it's going to show a, a side like for people who know the rest this wrestler uh it's gonna i think get to show them another side of this person that they have seen before um and then we've got an episode about uh collision in korea coming up where um there was this event where wcw was invited to go to north korea and it was uh uh, eric bischoff uh, put together a team of american wrestlers and antonio noki put together a team of Japanese wrestlers and they also brought Muhammad Ali of all people <laughs> and they uh, went to North Korea and um, they at this time uh, had no idea. I don't think any of the wrestlers um, had any idea what North Korea was like. And um, you get to really see them become very vulnerable and um, at times like they're, they're scared for their life and it's a, uh, and for us, it was cool to be able to interview wrestlers uh, from Japan, which um, was something that we really wanted to do after season two. It was a dream of ours to go to Japan and do the interviews, but with the pandemic, we weren't able to. But right. uh, we we got a team together in Japan, and we would uh, um, uh, to Skype in with them and be able to you know help do the interviews that way. But that was really cool. Cool. Well, sounds awesome. Dark Side of the Ring season three Thursdays on Vice, which you can get on cable. Yeah. Uh, Jason, it was so nice to catch up with you. Yeah, this was awesome. I love catching up with you. And so nice that you're back in town. Yeah, it's awesome. It's been, it's been the best. I'm doing so much fishing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, and fingers crossed for the future and the, and you know, vaccines and all that stuff. And you can get back back out there shooting. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Palmer Jamison at the Golden Palm and produced by the Halifax Examiner.